Oh my god, they're dead! Who could have done such a heinous act? I bet it was that frog down by the swamp. I don't like that frog. He's got them shifty eyes. It was that convict Ironjaw, that rapscallion. I bet it was that strange shadowy figure that likes to swing in the park on Thursday nights. I swear to you, it was my stuffed panda. He's, he's possessed. It could have been Ricky's arm. We haven't seen it since it got cut off. I definitely know who the killer is. That that way. Way. Blank is the killer. Hello and welcome to Blank is the Killer, the unoriginal horror movie podcast where I, your window into the macabre, Josh Baker, cover six new-to-me horror movies with a random spooky topic seven at the end. This episode is a Wes Craven extravaganza. All the movies covered in this episode were written and directed by Wes Craven. I like to think I'm a Craven fan and decided it was time to test that hypothesis. We'll be going further and further back in time as the episode progresses. Let's cram ourselves into this time machine. I hope you're craving some Craven. Number one, My Soul to Take, 2010, directed by Wes Craven. A man named Abel is unknowingly a serial killer named The Ripper. He kills his pregnant wife and is captured by the police. It's said that Abel has multiple souls, including The Ripper's. On the way to the hospital, the ambulance Abel is in flips after he attacks the people inside. He's thought to be dead, but his body isn't found. That same night, seven children are born prematurely, including his son. Sixteen years later, a kid named Bug doesn't complete a necessary ritual that keeps the Ripper's spirit away. The Ripper pops up and people, mainly the seven children, start dying. Bug is close friends with another one of the seven, named Alex. Bug mimics characters and knows things he shouldn't. Bug is the Ripper's son. Alex is possessed by the Ripper's soul and is murdering everyone. The Ripper wants to pin the murders on another of the seven named Jerome, but Bug doesn't agree and has to kill Alex in self-defense. The Ripper's soul leaves Alex as he dies. Abel and Alex, taken over by the Ripper's soul, are the killers. My Soul to Take is almost the greatest movie ever made. All that it needs is a different ending. Early on in the movie, Bug gives a presentation on the California Condor at school. The presentation includes Alex, who wears a Condor costume that Bug made. Not only does the costume look incredible, it can also shoot out vomit and poop. If My Soul to Take ended with Bug donning the majestic Condor costume to defeat the evil Ripper-possessed Alex, it would have been, without a doubt, the greatest movie I have ever seen. No debate, best movie of all time. Unfortunately, the movie ends with Bug and Alex talking forever in Bug's extremely dull bedroom before Bug has to boringly stab Alex in the stomach, which releases the Ripper soul and kills Alex. No extravagant Condor v. Ripper showdown. Josh, I heard my soul to take is a horrible movie. How could one simple thing, like changing the ending, make it a million times better than Citizen Kane? That's a good question, listener. I'm glad you brought it up. I don't have a good answer. It's hard to put the first three quarters of My Soul to Take into words. 
I'll give it a shot. Jarring, surreal, hilarious, melodramatic, frantic, campy, ridiculous, unbelievable, peculiar, bizarre. If I had to narrow it down, I'd say My Soul to Take is one of the most hilariously bizarre campfests I've ever seen. Did Wes Craven mean for My Soul to Take to be a comedy? It has to be self-aware, right? Example, the Jock 7 character impregnated the principal's daughter. The Ripper kills Jock 7 and asks, Anybody you want to say goodbye to? The Jock responds with, My unborn child. The Ripper then retorts, F your effing unborn child. Now where'd I leave your bee? That dialogue is objectively hilarious and absurd. Everyone's dialogue is. All the acting is over the top and oozing in camp. All the performances are terrible, yet perfect. I do want to give props to Max Theriot for signing on to play Bug. Throughout the movie, Bug imitates other characters as if he's somewhat possessed by them. It's ridiculous, but Theriot tries his damnedest. Remember Max Keeble's big move? It totally holds up. The redhead from that movie plays one of the seven, who's a weird Jesus freak. I expected her to play a bigger role in the movie. When she's first introduced, she looks like a cool witch. She's the second of the seven to die and doesn't really do anything. My Soul to Take score is incredibly cheesy and generic in a way that makes the movie even funnier. Wes Craven must have known he was making this hilarious, almost masterpiece. Surprisingly, the gore in the movie is only passable. There are way too many boring gut stabs, so I can't praise the kills. It's basically gut stab or throat slash. Take your pick. Strangely enough, the lame, uninspired kills didn't bother me at all that much, since what carries the movie is the zany dialogue and all-over-the-place plot. Not your regular slasher formula. The kills are overshadowed by the absurdity that is the rest of the movie. My Soul to Take is a wild ride with a lackluster ending. Everything up to the end is a trip that's totally worth seeing. I recommend checking out My Soul to Take solely due to how bizarre it is. It turns out a majority of the third act was changed after negative test screenings. I want to believe that My Soul to Take originally ended with Condor v. Ripper, and audiences' feeble minds weren't prepared for something that groundbreaking. Number 2, Shocker, 1989, directed by Wes Craven. A serial killer is killing tons of people. After a concussion, a college football player named Jonathan sees the serial killer in a dream. Since Jonathan saw the killer's van, he's able to lead his foster father, who's a lieutenant, and the police to the killer's location. The killer is a man named Horace Pinker. Pinker kills a bunch of the officers and escapes. Pinker kills Jonathan's girlfriend, Allison, whom Jonathan gave a heart necklace to right before the murder. Jonathan then dreams to locate Pinker again. Pinker is arrested. Pinker performs a weird ritual with what appears to be a TV demon before being executed by electric chair. Pinker's body dies, but he's able to possess other people. Pinker kills people and hops around different bodies. Ghost Allison shows up and tells Jonathan to use the heart necklace to stop Pinker. Pinker becomes one with broadcast television. Jonathan's football team causes a blackout, which allows Jonathan to trap Pinker in a TV. 
Horace Pinker is the killer. I'm not going to sugarcoat this section. Shocker is one of the most boring comedy slashers I have ever seen. I was so bored during my viewing of Shocker that I remembered that Wes Craven wrote and directed The People Under the Stairs, a movie that made it on the rotten list of last year's Pumpkin Harvest. Have I made a horrible mistake? I loved The Scream and A Nightmare on Elm Street movies, the only movies in those series that Craven is credited as the writer and director is Nightmare 1 and New Nightmare. Uh-oh. Maybe I only like Craven the director. He directed Deadly Friend and all the Scream movies, which I adore. He did write Nightmare 1 and 3. The people under the stairs and spoilers, Shocker, are shockingly bad and boring. I'll continue on with this vision, Wes, to find my true overall opinion of Craven. The premise for Shocker is decent. After being cooked in the electric chair, a crazy mass murderer turns into some kind of electrical current ghost man who can jump in and out of people's bodies and television sets. The problem with Shocker is the execution. You have this killer current that you can do pretty much whatever you want with kill-wise, yet almost all the kills are gut stabs and throat slashes. Wes Craven loves him some knife kills. Scream, My Soul to Take, and Shocker are full of them. The kills in the Nightmare series are creative and all over the place. Why are the kills in Shockers so bland? The movie was submitted for rating 13 times before receiving an R, but it doesn't sound like any creative gore was cut. A big problem I had with Shocker was the lead. Jonathan, a long name that is never shortened in the movie, is played by Peter Berg. Berg doesn't have any charisma, his delivery is bad, and he's not even a pretty boy. I'm confused about why he got the part. I know that the budget for Shocker was kept low by avoiding big name actors, but was Berg really the best possible candidate? His lieutenant dad is played by Michael Murphy, and I didn't like his performance either. It gave me Tom Atkins vibes. I didn't even like the choice for Horace Pinker. Mitch Pelegi didn't bring the energy I wanted. None of the acting wowed me. Ted Raimi is one of the football players, but I don't even recall him having any lines. He may have said something in the very beginning. The effects in the movie are dated, but some of them look kinda neat. Ghost Allison looks pretty good at times. Energy Pinker is weird, but fun. The best sequence in the movie has to be when Jonathan and Pinker are playing cat and mouse inside TVs as the channels change. Them being added into shows looks pretty good for 1989. One other thing I liked is when Jonathan sits in a chair that turns out to be Pinker. It reminded me of a great comic by Junji Ito titled The Human Chair. The gore in Shocker is done practically, but since all the kills are boring, the gore is too. The only gore that sticks out is when Pinker sinks his teeth into one correctional officer's lip and chomps off another's fingertips. Lots of 80s metal is played indiscriminately throughout the movie. It ranges from completely out of place to barely matching what's going on. At least it reminded me to add some Alice Cooper songs on Spotify. One of Cooper's guitarists, Kane Roberts, pops up as a construction worker Pinker possesses. Cooper himself played Freddy Krueger's adoptive dad in Freddy's Dead, The Final Nightmare. Craven didn't really have anything to do with that movie. 
Cooper is also a main character in a movie called Monster Dog, but all of his dialogue was dubbed over by someone else. I remember that movie being pretty terrible, but Cooper did a fun song called Identity Crises for the fake rock star he plays in the movie named Vince Raven. Besides that, Cooper played a bartender in a fun vampire movie called Suck, where a band becomes rock star vampires. It's been an actual decade since I've seen Suck. Maybe I should revisit that movie. Why yes, reminiscing about Alice Cooper's film career is much more interesting than Shocker. Why do you ask? Huh? This section is supposed to be about Shocker? Alright then. Shocker is shockingly boring. I don't recommend checking out Shocker. Things I didn't mention because of the Alice Cooper tangent. Jonathan is revealed to be Pinker's kid, which doesn't really have any impact on the story other than providing a bad explanation for Jonathan's weird dream link to Pinker. The whole dream link thing in Shocker is really stupid and I hate it. That's the thing with Shocker. It's really stupid and not even in a fun way. Watch Ernest Goes to Jail instead. Number 3, Swamp Thing, 1982, directed by Wes Craven. Alice Cable is sent to work at a laboratory in a swamp to replace a scientist that died mysteriously. There's talk of a paramilitary led by a man named Anton Arcane that's trying to take over the lab. Dr. Alec Holland works in the lab and creates a new formula that combines plant and animal DNA. Arcane and his paramilitary pop up, kill a bunch of people, take all but one of Holland's notebooks, and leave him for dead after he bursts into flames when coming in contact with the formula. Alice has the last notebook and manages to get away from the goons. A plant-man hybrid appears and starts taking out the paramilitary and protecting Alice. The Swamp Thing is Dr. Holland. Arcane comes into possession of the final notebook, captures Swamp Thing and Alice, and makes the formula. Arcane drinks the formula and turns into a monster. Swamp Thing and Alice escape. Monster Arcane pursues them and fights Swamp Thing. Swamp Thing wins. Anton Arcane and his paramilitary are the killers. Swamp Thing is based on the DC comic of the same name. Its original run was in the 1970s. I don't really know anything about Swamp Thing. I know that a Swamp Thing show was created for the DC Universe streaming service that was pretty much instantly cancelled, even though the buzz surrounding it has been positive. Based solely on the movie, Swamp Thing's powers include super strength, durability, regeneration, and resurrection. He's basically a butt-ugly cleric, or a green Jesus, if you will. A kid named Jude and Alice both die in the movie, but don't worry, Swamp Thing instantly resurrects them. Resurrection with no cooldown? The whole resurrection process takes about 30 seconds. Dang, Swamp Thing, you should go work at a hospital. This movie adaptation of Swamp Thing doesn't really have any horror elements, but IMDB has it listed as horror, sci-fi. The Swamp Thing costume looks terrible. It's a rubbery mess with no articulation. Poor Swamp Thing can't even turn his neck. I laughed out loud the first time a clear shot of Swamp Thing's face was shown. It looks really bad. It looks even worse when Swamp Thing starts talking and you can see the actor's real lips move behind the lips on the mask. Dick Durock played Swamp Thing in the movie 
and took up the rubber suit again for the 90s TV show. Swamp Thing looked a little better in that series. Back to the 1982 movie. Alice Cable is played by Adrienne Barbeau. She's a badass and takes out multiple paramilitary goons herself. In the beginning of the movie, she wears a Hawaiian shirt and has big, curly brown hair. She looks kind of like a sexy weird owl. I like that her character wasn't a typical damsel in distress until the last third of the movie where she's forced into a white dress and becomes the typical damsel in distress. I mean, what is she going to do against Monster Arcane, a wild hog, werewolf, creature from the Black Lagoon abomination that's swinging a claymore around? Monster Arcane is definitely one of the most absurd creature designs I've ever seen. I recommend looking up a video of the Swamp Thing vs. Monster Arcane fight just so you can witness the two garbage costumes going at it. That sounds overly negative. I did have a fun time watching Swamp Thing. It's one of the cheesiest movies I've ever seen. The dialogue is quippy and comic booky. There are some really silly scene transition animations used throughout which I assume were an attempt to try and capture the feel of comic book panels. There are a lot of stunts and explosions. The best stunt is when Holland runs to the swamp while completely engulfed in flames. That looked awesome and went on for quite a while. There's a few cuts during the run so someone must have had to be completely caught on fire at least three different times. Swamp Thing is an overly campy movie that ends up being a fun watch but is by no means a must see. I don't recommend checking this out unless you're a super fan of the Swamp Thing character and haven't gotten around to his first live action movie. Number 4, Deadly Blessing, 1981, directed by Wes Craven. A pregnant woman named Martha's husband dies in a strange tractor accident. Martha's friends Lana and Vicky come to hang out with her at her country home where most of the neighbors are Hittites. The only non-Hittite neighbors are Louisa and her daughter Faith. A figure dressed in all black stabs and kills a Hittite. A Hittite named John is exiled from the community after speaking up against his father. John was supposed to marry his cousin Melissa, who grabs a knife and runs off. John and Vicky meet up, engage in some heavy petting, and are murdered by the knife-wielding figure in black. Martha goes to Jim's grave and sees the body is missing. Martha finds Jim's body at Louisa and Faith's farm, and it's revealed that Faith was born a biological man. Louisa and Faith have been killing people since Faith never would have been able to make Jim love her after he got Martha pregnant. Martha runs home and Louisa and Faith pursue. Martha shoots Faith and Lana shoots and kills Louisa. Faith pops up and is about to kill Martha, when Melissa stabs her in the back. A short time later, Jim's ghost appears and tells Martha to beware the incubus. A demon then explodes out of the floor and takes Martha to hell. Louisa, Faith, and an incubus are the killers. That summary was crazy long and confusing, wasn't it? Throughout Deadly Blessing, the Hittites keep hooting and hollering about an incubus. At first, I thought they were referring to Martha as an incubus, since Jim used to be a Hittite until he met her. I assumed the Hittites were dum-dums and didn't know that they should be calling Martha a succubus. 
After Faith dies, the Hittite leader says, the messenger of the incubus is dead. The leader also forbids anyone from entering Martha's barn. It's the forbidden place. Thing is, the incubus appears from under the floorboards in Martha's house, not her barn. The whole incubus subplot makes no sense. The producers said there had to be the actual incubus at the end of the movie. The inclusion of the Incubus and Hittites is pretty pointless. Deadly Blessing as a whole is pretty pointless. What are we doing, Wes? So far, none of the Craven movies I've seen outside of the Scream and Nightmare on Elm Street series have actually been good. Deadly Blessing is no different. I wouldn't even say it's bad. It's just painfully meh. A movie where a live spider falls into Sharon Stone's mouth should be great. Kudos to Stone for allowing a live spider to fall into her mouth. Sure, she requested it be defanged first, which probably led to it starving to death shortly after the arachnid's eight-leg on-screen appearance. But hey, I wouldn't even let the defanged spider into my pie hole for any length of time. Props to her. That's why she's famous and I'm not. These days, the spider would be CGI, and it would look like crap. As soon as the spider makes contact with Stone's mouth, there's a cut to her waking up from the creepy, crawly nightmare. You know that as soon as the spider touched down, she zipped away from it. I know I'd fly across the room and probably bust through a wall like some kind of cartoon character if a spider like the one in the movie landed anywhere near me. Besides the mouse spider, there are a few other interesting sequences. A snake is let loose in Martha's bathroom, which ends up swimming around in a tub with her. There's a shot of the snake's head popping up between her legs while she's in the tub that Wes used again in A Nightmare on Elm Street. He replaced the snake with Freddy's glove. Vicky's Ford Mustang is lit on fire and she tries to drive away, but isn't able to escape before it explodes. Those are all the good parts unless you want to count the rando incubus who pops up to snatch Martha. Everything else in Deadly Blessing is a drag, especially the Hittites. A lot of time is spent on them and I guess the movie wants you to think they are behind the murders. As soon as people start dying, I pointed the finger at Louisa. It ends up being her and Faith. I'm still counting that as called it. Now I'm going to bring up a movie called Sleepaway Camp, so if you don't want the end of that movie spoiled, skip ahead a bit. It's known for its ending, so here's your last warning to smash that fast forward button. Sleepaway Camp ends with the reveal that the killer, Angela, was a boy that was raised as a girl. Sleepaway Camp came out in 1983. Deadly Blessing came out first and has practically the same reveal with Faith. Now I know that this was a horror movie trope back in the day. I'm in no way saying Deadly Blessing originated the trope. I haven't been able to find a good list that details the origins of this particular trope, which I'll generalize as the gender non-conforming slasher, but I can definitely see that it started in the 1970s, if not earlier. That generalization is a bit of a disservice to the subject, but what I basically wanted to bring up is that a lot of early depictions of transgender women are horror movie villains. That's obviously problematic 
since that means almost all the representation was negative. Modern culture is doing a much better job with transgender representation in movies. In Deadly Blessing, the reveal that Faith was born a man doesn't really have any impact on the story. To be fair, barely anything in the entire movie has anything to do with the overall story, which kind of makes the shocking reveal even more in bad taste, since it serves no actual purpose. The viewer already knows Louisa hates men. Finding out that she hates men so much she forcibly raised a son as a daughter doesn't really change anything. It makes her, Louisa, seem even crazier, but Louisa is already a murderer. Like Sleepaway Camp, the real motive for Faith becoming a killer is her abusive upbringing more than anything else. For the record, I know a lot of people point at Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho when this topic is brought up, and I don't think it should be included in the discussion at all, seeing as Psycho is a representation of dissociative identity disorder. Norman doesn't think his true gender is female or identify as a woman. Norman at times thinks he is his mother. If you're interested in hearing more about transgender representation in horror, I recommend you seek out research done by people that are more knowledgeable on the subject than myself. I can admit that I don't know nearly enough on the subject to provide a decent primer. Back to Deadly Blessing. The acting from the non-Hittites is fine. I liked Marin Jensen, Sharon Stone, and Susan Buckner as the three main girls. Jensen probably should have acted a little more grief-stricken seeing as her husband just died. The Hittites are all pretty terrible. Ernest Borgnine plays their leader, and he was nominated for a Razzie. He's intense to the point of it being goofy, but I assume that's what that type of overtly evangelical-to-a-fault character would be like. Michael Berryman plays the Hittite that's murdered early in the movie. I'm pretty sure he plays a much bigger role in the next movie I'm covering. The gore comes mostly from stabbings and isn't anything exciting. Deadly Blessing isn't worth watching. I'd say skip this one and watch Deadly Friend instead. Number 5, The Hills Have Eyes, 1977, directed by Wes Craven. A family continues trying to find a silver mine after being warned about going off the main road by an old man at a gas station. The dad drives like a moron for no reason and crashes, breaking one of the car's axles. People living in the hills start messing with the family. The dad goes to the gas station and the old man tells him that he had an awful son who he left for dead out in the hills. The old man warns that his son has had time to start a crazy family of hill people. The hill people murder a dog and a bunch of the family members. They also steal a baby. The remaining family members and German Shepherd kill all the men in the hill people family with the help of a hill daughter that wanted out. The hill people are the killers. The real killer is the stupid dad. He drives like a jackass while pulling a trailer full of people. He's lucky the trailer didn't flip due to his terrible driving. The dad is the reason why the family ends up stuck in the hills. Pet warning, the movie starts with two German Shepherds. One doesn't make it. There's a quick shot of a gutted dead dog that animal lovers aren't going to love. It's pretty obvious when it's going to be shown, so if you think they're going to show a dead dog and don't want to see it, avert your gaze when your dead dog sense is tingling. 
Turns out an actual dog carcass was used. Craven obtained it from the local sheriff's office. Knowing that it was real makes it way worse. Some of the family's pet birds are also killed by the hill people, but those bird deaths have nothing on the dead dog. The Hills Have Eyes is an iconic movie, a cult classic. I know that Michael Berryman became a horror icon because of it at least. How does The Hills Have Eyes hold up? It's, well, unfortunately the best way I can describe it is meh. Now I haven't seen the remake by Alexandre Aja, so I'm not comparing the original to that. I might cover that in the future. I've heard it's pretty intense. This episode is making me slowly come to terms with the fact that I might not be that big of a Craven fan. I'll contemplate that later though. The Hills Have Eyes is boring? I don't know. Let's talk about the Hill people's aesthetic. It's bad. They are insanely clean for a group of people that live out in the desert. Some of them have white teeth. Others have gross teeth. You have to go full gross teeth when it comes to your hill people. I didn't like their costumes either. They look like they are doing Flintstone cosplay. Dee Wallace is in this. She's more tolerable in this than other movies she's popped up in. She's the main reason why I've been putting off Critters. I did like the makeup for the hill dad. His face scars look solid. When it comes to the gore, it's mostly boring. Two characters die from gunshots to the stomach. The dad dies after being burnt up. The makeup effects for his burns was solid. The dog attacks on Michael Berryman look good. That German Shepherd kills two hill people single pawedly. There are some neat sequences like a car trap and a part where the hill daughter wrangles a rattlesnake and uses it as a weapon against her terrible hill brother. How was the acting besides D. Wallace? Mediocre at best. I'd like to focus on two characters, Bobby and Brenda. Robert Houston played Bobby and his acting is all over the place. He'll go from decent to terrible delivery at the speed of light. His line delivery elicited a few chuckles here and there. Susie Lanier played Brenda and her character starts shrieking whenever she's on screen after the first half of the movie. It's implied that one of the hill people forced themselves on her. I appreciated that being off screen. I don't think I'm going to be so lucky in Craven's first big movie, which I'll be covering next. Shrieking all the time makes sense, given the circumstances, but Brenda starts wailing like a banshee even when the family has the upper hand against the hill people. It's odd. She does give one of the better performances. The family has a really weird conversation where they revel in the fact that their German shepherd murdered a poodle once. To be clear, the non-hill people family are the ones reminiscing about the poodle murder. What a bunch of psychopaths. Craven wanted the hill people to kill the baby, but the cast and crew weren't keen on the whole infanticide thing. Craven said the movie was based on the legend of Sonny Bean and his feral family of cannibals. The Hills Have Eyes isn't anything special by today's standards. I don't really recommend it. If you're a horror fanatic, you should check it out due to its status as a classic, but I didn't find it all that great. Now on to the last movie on the list. 
Number six, The Last House on the left, 1972, directed by Wes Craven. Two girls, Mary and Phyllis, go to a shady part of town for a concert. Once there, they try to score some grass and end up captured by a group of escaped criminals, Krug, Weasel, Sadie, and Krug's son, Junior. The criminals assault the girls. The next day, Mary's parents, John and Estelle, are worried that Mary hasn't returned. The criminals take the girls and end up in the woods, right by Mary's house, after their car breaks down. The criminals humiliate the girls. Phyllis runs away but is caught and killed. Krug forces himself on, then kills Mary. The criminals wash up and end up staying with Mary's parents. The parents figure out the gang killed Mary. They find her body, take it back to the house, and set traps for the criminals. Weasel pops up unexpectedly, so Estelle seduces him, takes him into the woods, and bites off his member. Krug beats up John and talks Junior into killing himself. This gives John time to find a chainsaw. Estelle kills Sadie. The police, who have been bumbling about the entire day, show up in time to see John kill Krug with the chainsaw. Krug, Weasel, Sadie, and Junior are the killers. I thought about leaving Junior off the list since it stated that Krug hooked him on heroin so that Junior could be controlled. Junior himself doesn't technically kill anyone, suicide doesn't put you on the list, and Junior does save John's life. That being said, Junior could have done something to help the girls. The last house on the left was nothing like I expected. For the rest of the section, well, the majority, I'm just going to refer to this movie as Last House. Last House includes rape. I think that's common knowledge. I've talked about rape revenge movies in the past. Sexual violence is rarely used for anything other than shock value in horror movies, which is a problem. In Last House, it's there solely for shock value. Last House is a textbook example of a 70s exploitation film. The whole deal with exploitation films was to include as much shocking and taboo material as possible. If you can get the media to denounce your movie, you can bet that more people are going to want to see it. As far as including a man forcing himself on a woman in a movie goes, I think Last House does it in a more tasteful way than contemporaries. I know that's a weird thing to say, but the scene isn't drawn out. Almost the entire sequence is a close-up shot of the actors' faces, which completely works without being overly gratuitous. Don't get me wrong, the whole thing is still gross, disturbing, and unnecessary. I just found the presentation to be handled about as well as it could have been for a 70s exploitation movie. Now I just covered something heinous that happens in the movie. Does the soundtrack capture the tone of the atrocities that happen during Last House? Not at all. Here's where things get weird tonally. Most of the score is easiest described as upbeat banjo singer-songwriter. Right after Mary's assaulted, a completely out-of-place ballad plays. The criminals even have their own feel-good theme song with lyrics that includes a kazoo. Here are some of the lyrics. Weasel and Junior, Sadie and Krug, out for the day with the Collingwood Brood. Out for the day for some fresh air and sun. Let's have some fun with those two lovely children. We'll off them as soon as we're done. It's bizarre. Stephen Chapin and David Hess did the soundtrack. 
David Hess also played Krug, which brings me to the acting. For the weird, exploitation, campy, blood-filled, rape-revenge movie that it is, I think the acting in Last House fits perfectly. David Hess's Krug is a horrible, criminal piece of human scum that you want to see chainsawed to death. He was also one of the military dudes in Swamp Thing. Turns out he stayed in character on set of Last House and acted like a complete garbage person who made others feel unsafe during the shoot. What an inconsiderate jackass. You're no Daniel Day-Lewis, David. Jeremy Rain is great as the over-the-top Sadie. We interrupt this discussion to bring you a mini pet warning. You hear on the radio that Sadie kicked a German Shepherd to death. It's more absurd than anything. Back to your originally scheduled acting discussion. Fred J. Lincoln is a good fit as the Weasley Weasel. Mark Scheffler is solid as the Junkie Son. Sandra Peabody is wonderful as the Innocent Mary. Lucy Grantham is just right as the bad influence Phyllis. Richard Towers and Cynthia Carr play the parents. I would have liked a little more from Towers as John, but Cynthia Carr carries the parental performances. There are two cop characters that I haven't really mentioned. In the summary, I said they bumbled around the whole movie, which they in fact do. They drive by a strange abandoned vehicle that's sitting right outside of Mary's house after learning that she's missing. Once the dumb cops finally put together that the vehicle belongs to the escaped criminals, they run out of gas while heading back to Mary's place. They then try to hitch a ride with the woman who's driving a truck fully loaded with chickens. There's a slapstick moment when the cops sit on the roof of the truck then fall off. You can't spell incompetent without C-O-P. The whole inclusion of these useless cops is baffling. The tonal whiplash they cause is insane. For the following analogy, I know that Smokey and the Bandit came out after Last House, but hear me out. You've all seen Smokey and the Bandit, right? No? Well, Burt Reynolds plays an outlaw, the Bandit, who's escorting an illegal shipment of beer. He's running away from and making a fool of a cop, Smokey. It's a good time. I recommend Smokey and the Bandit. Anyways, the goofball cops work in that movie because you're cheering on the bandit. No one wants to see Burt Reynolds get caught. Now picture Smokey and the bandit with one teensy tiny change. The bandit is now the killer rapist. If the movie was Smokey and the killer rapist, would you still want Smokey to be a bumbling doofus? Of course not. You'd want Smokey to go full on dirty hairy and fill the killer rapist with six shots, or only five. Six, probably. You've all seen Dirty Harry, right? That movie did come out before Last House. My point is, what is going on with the tone of Last House? Why does Estelle decide that the best way to kill Weasel, once his hands are tied behind his back, is to go down on him and bite off his wiener? Oh yeah, shock value. It's kind of hilarious, which I'm pretty sure was the point. I have to believe that Craven and everyone working on Last House were self-aware about what they were making. How's the gore, by the way? Cheap in a fun way, Phyllis is stabbed by all the criminals but Junior in a sequence that looks good. There are even intestines. 
The criminal showing Mary Phyllis's cut off arm to show that she's dead is great, even though the actual effects for the dismembered limb don't look all that fantastic. Estelle slicing Sadie's throat as Sadie tries to pull herself out of an in-ground pool she foolishly ran into looks awesome. You don't really see much chainsaw action, unfortunately, but I did love the part where John goes full Kevin McAllister and puts a live wire under a rug before soaking it in water, making a creative, electrifying booby trap. Home Alone came out after Last House. I know you knew that. Throughout the movie, we are shown shots of this stagnant, putrid-looking lake water. Mary ends up walking into said water, which I found to be the worst thing shown in the movie, because Sandra Peabody really did walk into, then submerge herself into that water. That's where she's shot to death, but if the bullets didn't kill her, brain-eating algae probably would have. Let's see. Did... Sandra Peabody succumb to brain-eating algae. Nope. Thank goodness for that. She's still kicking. The last house on the left is a weird, tonally all-over-the-place exploitation film that is overflowing with the 1970s and has a very important message. If you try to buy the wacky tobacco, you will die. Before watching Last House, I didn't think there would be any way that I'd recommend the movie, but due to the movie's overtly bizarre nature and it being a perfect representation of a 70s exploitation horror movie, I recommend checking out The Last House on the Left. It's an absurd time capsule. Number 7, The Final Judgment of Craven, Wes. Before jumping into the proceedings, I just want to let you listeners know that I had a ton of fun with this episode. Did I love all the movies? Nope. Far from it, actually. But I did indeed love the format. One director, six movies. It's much better than one terrible movie and its multitude of sci-fi original sequels. It's infinitely more fun to watch multiple bad movies than watch multiple bad movies in a series. Mr. Craven, this episode has shaken my faith and my love for you as a writer-director. When it comes to movies, Craven both wrote and directed. I think the only one that I've seen that I can say is legitimately a good movie is A Nightmare on Elm Street. As far as movies in which Wes only had a part in writing, A Nightmare on Elm Street 3 Dream Warriors is great. On to movies Wes directed that are legitimately good movies. All the Scream movies. I also really like Deadly Friend, but I remember it being more of a so-bad-it's-good kind of movie. Craven wrote and directed both The People Under the Stairs and Shocker. I really disliked both of those movies. I'm probably going to throw Shocker into the rotten section of the blank is the killer pumpkin harvest this year. If you are curious about what that is, it's a special episode I release every October that covers the ripe, best, and rotten worst movies of the previous year. The People Under the Stairs is in the rotten section of the first Pumpkin Harvest. Two of Craven's movies are going to be in the overall rotten movie list. 
So I obviously am not a big fan of Craven, right? Even though I didn't like most of the movies I watched this episode, I still think I am a fan of Craven. I've realized that he loved putting boring knife kills, weird dream stuff, dead German shepherds, and kids of the killers in a lot of his movies, which never really worked for me. I wish I could ask Craven if the comedic elements in movies like My Soul to Take, New Nightmare, and The Last House on the Left were intended. I want to believe Craven was self-aware when it came to his more outlandish movies, but Shocker was supposed to be funny and wasn't at all. I love Scream and A Nightmare on Elm Street, but maybe I gave Craven too much credit for his involvement in those series. His directing of the Scream series is fantastic, but he didn't write any of the movies. I feel like most people agree that Scream 3 is the worst of the series. I don't agree with that, but most people do. Scream 3 was the only movie in the series that wasn't written by Kevin Williamson. Besides Scream 1, 2, 4, Williamson also wrote The Faculty, Cursed, and the screenplay for I Know What You Did Last Summer. I hear Cursed is awful due to producer meddling, but I might still give it a shot if only to see how bad it ended up. I didn't cover it in this episode since Craven only directed it. I was trying to make a point. Oh yeah, whenever the idea of a Scream 5 is brought up, I see fans say they don't want another Scream without Craven. I can understand that, but Williamson wrote all the good Scream movies and he's still around to write another. People should be saying they don't want Scream 5 without Williamson. I'm supposed to be coming to a concrete conclusion regarding whether or not I'm a fan of Wes Craven. The evidence points to no, but my heart still says yes. Even though I find a lot of his movies to be pretty bad, they have this weird heart that I just can't ignore. To be continued, The Vision West isn't over. I still need to see The Serpent and the Rainbow, Vampire in Brooklyn, Cursed, Red Eye, and The Hills Have Eyes Part 2. Someday I'll be able to say I've seen all of Craven's horror movies, but that won't be in the near future. That'll do it for Blank is the Killer 52 West Craven Extravaganza. I definitely want to do this kind of director-centric episode again. As always, a big thanks to Sticker Fridge for hosting the podcast on their website, allowing it to seep into your minds. If you dug the podcast, why not leave a rating on iTunes? That would be cool. If you have any questions or concerns, shoot an email to blankisthekiller at gmail.com. Next episode will be up on September 8th. Ready or not, we'll be on that episode. Sorry if you were looking forward to hearing about that movie sooner. I decided not to interrupt the Wesathon. I'll more than likely be covering it, Chapter 2, as well. If Pennywise doesn't say, Kiss me, fat boy, that movie's getting a 0 out of 10. Till next time, remember, My Soul to Take could have been the greatest horror comedy of all time if it only ended in a kid dressed as a California condor duking it out with a bud possessed by an evil serial killer soul.